from the Amore Cafe here in Inwood, New York City. Uh, welcome to Inwood Artworks On Air, where we meet the musicians, filmmakers, writers, theater makers, and artists of all stripes that make their home in what we affectionately call upstate Manhattan. Um, I'm your host, Aaron Sims, and today we're turning our artist spotlight on playwright Samuel D. Hunter. Uh, Sam is the author of over a dozen plays produced here in New York and across the country, uh, including The Whale, which is a recipient of a Drama Desk Award and the GLAAD Media Award, uh, the Obie Award-winning A Bright New Boise, and most recently, Greater Clements, uh, which played at the 2019 season at the Mitzi Newhouse in Lincoln Center. Sam's many awards include the 2011 Sky Cooper Prize and the 2013 Otis Guernsey New Voices Award. In 2014, he was awarded a MacArthur Fellowship. We're going to talk to him about that and so much more. But first, let me welcome you, Sam, to In What Artworks On Air. Thanks so much for having me. This is great. We look out on kind of a sunny and windy uh, and a naturally quiet Broadway. Yeah. And yes, for those of you who don't know, Broadway goes the length of the island in Manhattan. Uh, we are, of course, in the middle of an unprecedented moment in New York and the country as we enter our 17th week of quarantine in the face of the worldwide coronavirus pandemic. Non-essential businesses remain closed, and for many around the world, face masks, social distancing, and regular disinfectant has started to feel almost normal. For the record, we're observing all those precautions as we record today, people, uh, so let that be known. But first, let me just check in with you, Sam. How are you and yours doing? I'm good. I, I mean, you know, as good as to be expected in something like this. I mean, I think, I, you know, I, I'm always, you know, acutely aware every day that my suffering pales in comparison to so many other people. But that being said, like, you know, I think like everybody, we're finding a rhythm, you know, work is harder and being a dad is harder, but it's, it's not impossible. And, you know, there, and then there are bright spots to it all. And, and, and those are really valuable and meaningful. And, and it's just really nice to be here. This is like, I think the first thing I've done, <laughs> it feels like, you know, like I like took a shower and got dressed and like went to a place to do a thing. And it, 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 it's, I'm just so happy to be doing this. Like this feels like such a bright spot. Um, so we're okay. Yeah. My kid is two and a half and, um, she, she's kind of thriving if I'm being really honest. I mean, she, you know, she, I, I, you know, worry a little bit as I'm sure many other parents do about, you know, all these weeks of no social interaction with other kids. But that being said, you know, she's having a ball. She loves being home. Her language is exploding. So, so yeah, we're okay. And it's great to have that personal attention too, right? She's getting. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Every day, all day long. And and also just does show us well, like, what does commuting mean anymore? Do you really have to go to LA to have that uh, writer's meeting? Well, that's, you know, I've been on a lot. I You know, the screenwriting projects um, that I'm doing are still kind of going along. I mean, I think to a certain degree... Hollywood is just kind of like holding its breath and and but in the meantime the writers can still write and so if anything I've I've gotten even more sort of like check-in emails and like projects are suddenly moving forward at a quicker pace than they were before you know I don't know what that's going to look like in like three months six months um, when the reality of production starts to set in but you know it's I mean probably film and tv is going to come back before theater and you know they're I think looking at you know what is that look like I've, I had a, like a very preliminary conversation with a film director over zoom a few days ago where he was like 
yeah, I don't know. I mean, this is a small film and you could do it with a small crew in a supervised space. And like, obviously he's not going to do that now or next week or even probably next month. But what does that look like when we maybe do have testing and we can do this in a responsible way? So, you know, there is that very, very distant light at the end of the tunnel, I think. It is hard to find the words to figure out and to capture like New York City and for that matter the world in this moment. But as someone who whose creative work centers on ordinary people in search of more meaningful human connections, let me ask, given what we as a society are calling upon uh, and talents of so many ordinary people to put themselves out there as essential workers right now, uh, how does the world appear from your point of view right now? I think being a theater artist right now, there's something really sobering about it because the world doesn't need plays. I'm just going to have to be really honest with what I do. And even though I love it so much, like the world does not need plays. The world wants plays, but the world doesn't need it. The world needs these essential workers. They need the grocery stores. They need the hospitals. You know, and I've thought a lot about like, you know, if I were to speak to my 17 year old self right now who you know was writing that clunky poetry and like would I say like put that pen down and like go to medical school I don't know I maybe I should say that but I don't know if I would you know look pandemic or no pandemic we're all living in a state of crushing uncertainty and I think that this pandemic has really put that into stark relief but I don't think that plays as esoteric as they are, are going to like lose value once we all come back. But I do think that in the interim, those of us who make art really need to realize that we went into the arts while a bunch of people didn't and took essential jobs, necessary jobs. And so I think we need to approach our work with that kind of humility and gratitude that if they hadn't have made that decision to become essential workers, we couldn't be making things like plays. And I, and I really hope that, you know, artists continue to, or maybe even more so lean into the sort of humanity of their work and their characters and their, and what they're putting out there, because like, that's, that's what's going to really matter. And that's what we have to give is that kind of humanity and uh, empathy. Yeah. And what support can we give the through art? Like, exactly. Because they do need, I mean, mental health is a big issue. Yeah. So you can't be forced to put up with well, anyone's job 24-7 is too much. Um, we've called on our essential workers, particularly our frontline workers in the medical industry, to deal with a lot more than they've ever dealt with, at, in, in a volume perspective at least. Yeah. Uh, so how can, how can art serve that conversation and bringing it to them? Because we're going to have a hard time getting them out. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Right? So we have to keep thinking about that. You talked about a little earlier before we came on air about Moscow, Idaho. What do you find about that place that that brings you back to it and in your work and so literally so often? Yeah, yeah. It's funny. I, I at first, I think I wrote plays set in Idaho because it was like a shorthand for specificity. It was just a way I could really locate it. It kind of for me personally, it was just helpful to be like, okay, I know this place. I know these people, uh, and not that I would, you know, I I don't model any of my characters after anybody from real life or people that I grew up with or anything but that's the landscape and the territory that my mind had been in for the first 18 years of my life and my family's been there for a really long time and I still go back there very frequently and so when I first moved to New York when I was 17 and 
or 18, I guess, and went to NYU and was writing plays. I very quickly started putting them in Idaho just so I could have that specificity and have, and, and they were kind of student plays, you know, they, I mean, they weren't great, but there, something just kind of clicked about it. And I, I think the more I did it and I did it for, it was, it was years later, like well after I had written like a bright new Boise and the whale, probably around like 2013, where I realized like, oh, this isn't just about, I'm writing about the place where I came from. It's a couple different things. One, it's, it's, it's not about any one play. It's about a larger body of work. And I really hope that the plays speak to one another and dovetail off one another. I always think of like plays as being sort of responses to other plays. Like I just finished a new one that I think is really very much a response to the play that I just had at Lincoln Center, Greater Clemens. And then I think the other aspect to this is, is like I had to realize at a certain point that I don't really consider myself a regional writer. And the Idaho that I am creating play by play is not, I don't strive for it to be a direct correspondence to the actual Idaho that's going on 3,000 miles away from one another. And so in a certain way, play by play, I've been developing this sort of like parallel Idaho that is like corresponding to, but not directly drawing from the real Idaho where my parents still are. And that allows me to feel like the plays are all sort of like chapters in the same book that I'm still writing. Right. But yet Idaho can also still be that platform for your ideas. Yeah. Yeah. And then I think obviously the other part of it is, it's just sort of like, there's, I think that there's, there's a lot of plays that are like set in brownstones on the Upper East Side and, you know, nice houses and the Hamptons. And that's fine. Those are human beings and those are stories and they're valid. But, but I just, um, I think there's room for other parts of this country to live on our stages here in New York City. Well, speaking of, you make your home here in Fair Inwood, mm-hmm. uh, noting where we are here now, and listeners are probably wondering what they're hearing all around us and different things. Like, yes, those are sirens going by us. We're near a hospital. There, yes, there are a lot of things happening in the city. So part of this is capturing that. So listeners might wonder what's going on, but also listeners might be wondering what brings you here to Inwood, you know, particularly, and um, given what you just said about this body of work that you're accumulating, and and I think you have ideas that are trickling in now that you had many years before, perhaps when you're writing that poetry, yeah, and yeah. Uh, and then and maybe forming new ones that'll gesticulate and bring you out maybe nine, ten years from now. Um, how has this neighborhood affected your writing, if at all? And I think it actually really has, not in like direct ways, but in countless ways. I think I think we moved here in late 2010 or early 2011. And the place that we had been living in before that, I mean, like many artists, and my husband's also an artist, he's a dramaturg, we bounced around from a lot, to, from a, many, many, many different apartments. I could, you know, I would have to like really sit down and count them. But the last one we were at before Enwood, uh, and we've lived in three different places in Inwood by this point. But before we moved to Inwood, we were in a fifth floor walk-up studio in Hell's Kitchen, a legal sublet. Um, and we were there for almost three years. And like at a certain point, it was just like, this is a house of cards. It's just going like, to fall. And it was also just like, you know, I mean, I love Hell's Kitchen. And it was so nice to be able to sort of walk to pretty much every play that I was seeing and walk to rehearsals or walk to wherever. Um, and we were still in our twenties and it was okay, you know, but it just started grading on us in this way. And it started kind of just like grading on our relationship. And, and so we were like, we have to get out. And one, one day I was visiting an actor friend of mine who had just done a play of mine and he lived all the way up in Inwood. And I was like, Ooh, okay, here I go. And I got on the A train and I got out and I was like, that wasn't actually not that far. Like, like you, like, like you think it's so far, but that train ride is not that bad. 
And I met him at his apartment on Seaman, and then we took his dog for a walk in Inwood Hill Park. And that was the moment that I was like, where am I? This is incredible. I mean, just the the space and the views and the community. And I immediately told my husband about it. And so when we had the sort of out and we were able to get out of that apartment, I went to New Heights Realty and just like threw myself at them being like, please let us rent a studio apartment. I'm sure Rob loved it. (laughs) And they were very kind to us. And we tried to rent the studio on 207 and Seaman. And I walked in and it was, you know, the studios here are big. And the studio we were living in in Hell's Kitchen was like not, I mean, it was like maybe 250 square feet. You know, so I was looking in this amazing, you know, 800 square foot studio or something like that. Maybe not that big, but I took videos of it and sent it to my husband. I mean, it was just like, like, oh my God, we're saved. And then I remember I was teaching a high school playwriting workshop and my phone buzzed and it was Maria from New Heights telling us that the landlord had denied us. And it was really like, oh, I think New York City is kicking us out. I think this is the moment where New York is like, you had your try. (laughs) It's not working out. So just like, you know, like kindly move to, to, I don't know, uh, Connecticut or, you know, I don't even know. Where do people go? But then I went to Maria, sort of like totally crestfallen. And she was like, here, let me, let me just see what I can do. And so she took me to meet this landlord on Park Terrace West who was super sweet and he showed me a studio that was the same size and pretty much the same price. And basically without looking at much of anything, he just shook my hand and was like, yeah, I trust you. And I was like, what? <laughs> like, that, how does, does that still happen? Welcome to the neighborhood. Like, yeah, exactly. It was incredible. And so, and then we lived on that studio in Park Terrace West for probably close to three years before, before we were able to save enough money to put money down on a, on a one bedroom. And so we, bought a one bedroom in the Park Terrace Gardens. And then once Francis came along, we really wanted to expand and we love Park Terrace Gardens. And so uh, we got a two bedroom uh, and that's where we are now. And we're really, really happy. Uh, and we just, I mean, yeah. And I, I just, what I, and I, sorry, getting back to your original question about how it's affected my work is like. That's okay. Now I know how to get an apartment in New York City. And <laughs> <laughs> only in this neighborhood. Yeah, 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 exactly. It's a handshake deal. Uh, but, but, you know, I think before moving to Inwood, my, my work was kind of like inching toward like, plays that were about people like desperately kind of trying to connect with one another and people trying to save one another. And I think for, for whatever reason, moving to Inwood, the plays really went hard toward that theme and that structure. And I think because like, I felt like I'm such, I'm such part of a community here. And like, every time I leave my apartment, I see somebody that I know and I say hi and I have a conversation. So the, the plays I think increasingly became about community and human connection in part because of here. I also think it's just like so healthy because I have this connection to Idaho, which is a more rural place, and but also this deep connection to New York City, which is my home and the place that I love. And Inwood is this kind of incredible mix of town and country where it's like, it's definitely New York City, the A-train here, and Broadway's right at the door here. But but then you go into Inwood Hill Park, and if you go deep enough, you're like, you're, you're just in a forest. You could be anywhere. Yeah, you could, yeah, you, really, you could be, you could be 300 miles upstate. You know, it's pretty incredible. I think so, too. I live here, too, just so you guys know. <laughs> Having said all that, you need to be comfortable laying your head since you're able to work somewhere, right? And to be able to put ourselves forward as people, because if you don't have a, if you don't have the production of your life in order, so to speak, you can't really produce in other different directions. What kind of world do you think Francis is growing up in with all this happening and the, the stage, setting that stage for her 
I mean, because you come from an artist family and, uh, and this is a great community and it is changing. What kind of world is she walking into, you think, with, uh, with the changes coming in? Recently, I had this realization that Frances, who was born in 2017, there's a very good chance that she's going to live to see the year 2100. I kind of, when I was thinking about that number, my eyes just sort of like grew really wide with this question of like, what are they? What will the stories be? Yeah. What will the stories be? But then, you know, I'm not much of an ap- a guy for the apocalypse. I just, I think it's kind of like, it's a little facile. And I, and I think like, even before this pandemic, there was a little bit too much of the like, we're all going to die. Ha ha. Cheers. You know what I mean? That kind of like dark pessimism slash humor that's just like really easy and it's very cavalier it's very cavalier and it's it's not it's not well thought out it's 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 just an easy it, it's it's a weird kind of cop out to be like well i don't have to think about it because we're all gonna die ha 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 and like you know look i have no idea what's going to happen again like i said before we all live in crushing uncertainty pandemic or no, no pandemic but there's nothing to do but put one foot in front of the other and like and know that like something is going to be there at 2100. I have no worries about like storytelling. I mean like that's like you know that's like base level human community. But we'll <laughs> always like, have the campfire, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Um and you know, I'm 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 worried for in in many different ways. I mean like in some ways I'm glad that she's going through this now and she's not really aware of what's going on because she's two and a half. But, you know, if something, if it's not a pandemic, it could be something else. If that happens when she's 12 and a half, I mean, that's going to be really different. And I'm going to have to figure out how to sort of like navigate that with her at that age, you know. You'll be a Zoom dad. (laughs) Oh, boy. (laughs) (laughs) I think that's something different, actually. Zoom dad. Oh, is that something different? Oh, man, I don't know. It pays Um, pretty well, I think. It's probably, you know what? It probably does. (laughs) One thing I want to, talked about slightly changed subjects with talked about theater we talked about how storytelling will keep evolving film and tv uh seems to be the like I said the first to recover and you work in other mediums of course but uh i wanted to bring up uh baskets for example <laughs> yeah. which has been uh four seasons right yeah Not going yeah. into it yeah it's that, done that, now but yeah we had four we had four full seasons which you're a writer and also a producer on as well so um so can you talk a little bit about that experience and perhaps a glimpse to how writing for TV has affected you as a playwright, but also how it might affect your future? It's uh, funny. I, I wasn't searching out a TV gig when the Baskets thing came along. And like my agent, I had a film and TV agent, but it was kind of theoretical at that point. It was something I, I, I knew that I had to do it. You don't have a film and like, TV agent until they get you a job. Right, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> well, it was this thing like my playwriting agent was like, you really should have one. And I was like, okay, fine. Like, um, but I really wasn't doing anything. I mean, I, 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 I want, it's not that like, I, I it's not that I think like theater is so far superior. I, I'm not one of those jerks, but, but it's just like, I was getting a lot of work in theater and I loved theater and, and we didn't have a, a dog or a kid. And so like my responsibilities were pretty low. And so I could be traveling 300 days of the year, you know, which was like, you know, one of the, like 2013 or something like that. Like my, my days of travel was, it was close to that. It was like 285 days of travel. But I knew it wasn't tenable and I knew if we wanted to have a family, we needed to figure it out and, you know, we needed health insurance. Playwrights don't really have a proper, we have a guild, which is great, but our union, our guild doesn't give us health insurance. So anyway, this, this random email came from my TV agent and he was like, so there's this new TV show called 
baskets that's created by the guy who created Portlandia and it's about a rodeo clown played by Zach Galvanakis. And at the time I was like, what? Like I, that sounds great, but like, I'm not a comedy writer. Like my, I, I don't know how to I'm do I'm sorry. That. You've reached Samuel Hunter. Yeah, exactly. It just was like, I don't understand this. And then, but my agent was like, no, 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 you really, really should talk to him. And so, so I was like, fine. I, I mean, I love Portlandia. I'd love to talk to him. And so I was, I was in, I was in the Bay Area workshopping a play, uh, workshopping what became Lewiston and Clarkston. And I was specifically working on Clarkston there, I think, and which is set mostly in a Costco. And I got on the phone with John Kreisel, the creator, and we just started talking. And he was like, well, what's the player working on? And I was like, oh, it's this play that's set in a Costco. And he was like, you know, Costco is like all over baskets, <laughs> like because they had already written the pilot. And one of the things is that the mother character played by Louis Anderson in a brilliant turn is kind of obsessed with Costco. And like there was ton, you know, and one of the characters, Martha, works at a Costco and there's tons of scenes in Costco. And that like weird little door got open. And then all of a sudden I was like, maybe this is like something because what he said, he was like, look, I'm specifically looking for a playwright like you because I can get comedy writers to make jokes and stuff, but like, I really want this to feel like slapstick drama. And I was like, I've never seen anything like that. That sounds really interesting. And so I went into this writer's room without having even, I didn't even have final draft on my computer. Like, like, like I'd never done any screenwriting and I sat down in this room and I was with, it was a very small room. It was just John, two other writers and me. And the two other writers were kind of seasoned comedy writers and they just started going like just, idea after idea pitch after pitch and and I was just kind of like left in the dust and I was like I am not in the right room <laughs> like like this is not how I work I don't even know what the show is about and they're like talking about like chip baskets open the ice cream shop and I'm and like I'm just sitting there thinking why why would he do that what's this show about and and but then John to his credit I think like really like after a week of me not saying much we went out for lunch and he was really just sort of like you can do this you know, it's just like new and, and we want your ideas. And, and so I kind of slowly opened up and started pushing the room in different ways. And then when I met Louis Anderson and he was such a kind of beautiful, heartfelt man. And then I was really like, there is much more to this character than like the sort of joke of Louis Anderson wearing a dress, you know? And so I started writing a lot for his character, for the mom character. And that's, I, I continued to sort of like write a lot for her throughout the four years of the show. And I think he gives kind of a brilliant performance. Yeah. And, it, and really heartfelt and touching performance too. So yeah, I mean, it was great. I mean, it was in LA, which was tough. And this last writer's room, we had Francis. And so John and Francis came out to LA for six weeks with me, which was, which was hard, but it was special enough that it was worth it. Well, you kind of lead me to a really cool point about your writing in general, which I've noticed since way back, is that you know you, you find humor and joy in lives around that many people might otherwise presume is nearly joyless, <laughs> I think. I mean, I don't know. Does that sound right to you in a way? Yeah, I mean, yeah. And, and, and so can you talk about where that comes from? I mean, the, ro the role humor plays in that serious portrayal of someone's core of the truth of their character and, and also the core of what you're trying to get at in the room or in your own room when you're writing a play. Yeah. Yeah, it's funny. It wasn't really until writing Baskets that that I really had to realize, like, oh, right, like, my my plays aren't humorless. You know what I mean? As much... And it's... it's I guess it's just weird for me to say because, like, like for instance, Greater Clements, it was just at Lincoln Center. I mean, that's, like, a high tragedy. You know, like, I, like I was, like, deliberately writing, like, a three-act tragedy. 
kind of like a state of the nation tragedy. And I just think that like, and it's not like there's a lot of jokes in my plays. It's kind of hard to point to like zingers. I think the humor usually comes in just like recognition of human flaws that are like dear and lovely. Do you know what I mean? And like, recognizable. Yeah, exactly. Like, and that's, I think like a lot of like the laughter that I get in my plays, it's, it's really not zingers or witticisms or anything like that. It really is just sort of like people being flawed in really beautiful ways. And I love theater laughter too, because it's so different than normal laughter. It's because like laughter is the only way that it's the only socially acceptable way that we have to interact with a performance. And so laughter has like many, many, many forms. There's like, there's joke laughter, but then there's like laughter of recognition, love laughter. You know what I mean? Nervous laughter. Nervous laughter. Yeah. And it's like all those like different modes of it that I'm like always constantly interested in. And that's great because regardless of the la- what type of laughter it is, it makes us all feel that we're all okay together. Yes, exactly. And I think we could use a lot more of that right now. Yeah. And so. we're going to really need it at the other end of this thing. Yeah. Well, Sam, there's quite a bit of your work that we did not get a chance to talk about because there's so much of it. But is there a place that listeners can go to follow your work and find out more about what you do? I mean, I have a Twitter feed that I'm really, really bad at. <laughs> it's just my name, Samuel Deonter. But I mean, I'm, I'm, I think pretty much all of my plays are published by Samuel French. Greater Clements is about to come out, but pretty much every other play is available. I also have a couple anthologies that are available through TCG books. One of them is just A Bright New Boise and the Whale, and then another one is Five Plays. And then I, I will, it probably will be delayed a bit, but I will have a new anthology coming out that's um, Lewis and Clarkson and Greater Clemens. Two opus works, I have to say. Very, very long. Very long <laughs> yes. shows that were both happening just in the past two years. Yeah. Produce-wise. I mean, obviously. That's right. But that's just Red Rattlestick for those who didn't know. And then also at Lincoln Center at the Mitzi Newhouse, we said earlier. Well, uh, thank you, Sam, for being here today. Thank you for showering today, by the way. Yeah. Uh, we appreciate <laughs> we got We got you to do that today. It's pretty awesome. Showing up. It's pretty awesome. <laughs> Baby steps. <laughs> uh, so listeners, we'll have those links up to you on our, our website at inwoodartworks.com. Uh, NYC. Uh, so, and uh, it would work on air, of course. So, my thanks to Sam Hunter. Thank you so much uh, for joining us here on this Artist Spotlight edition of Inwood Artworks On Air, where we showcase the musicians, filmmakers, writers, theater makers, and artists of all stripes that make their home up here in upstate Manhattan. Be sure to follow us at Inwood Artworks on Twitter and Instagram and Facebook, and at Inwood Artworks at NYC on the web to keep up with all we do, which includes programs like the Inwood Film Festival, which, by the way, Sam has been on our award committee for the past yeah, three years and look forward to continuing absolutely uh filmworks alfresco the public galleries we do live performances and so much more uh stay tuned for more editions of our spotlight as well so thanks again to the fine folks here at amore cafe and juice bar for hosting us please support your local small businesses we're all in this together folks so for what artworks on air this is aaron sims Thanks for listening to this Artist Spotlight episode of Inwood Artworks On Air. If you have a moment, please show some love right now for this podcast and for the musicians, artists, filmmakers, and writers of Inwood by reviewing Inwood Artworks On Air on Apple Podcasts. It really helps, and we really appreciate it. So thanks so much. Uh, Be sure to also check out our Live and Local series, where we showcase the songs and stories of Inwood's musical artists and creators. In the meantime, stay tuned for more Artist Spotlight programs released monthly from Inwood Artworks.